All right, we are going to be reading in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. So if you'd like to join me, I think it'll be up on the screen as well. All right, here we go. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. <clears throat> yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As, is, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Austin. Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day. Can you hear me all right? All right, I'm going to recenter over here. It's like there is, there's two-thirds of the congregation on this half of the room. So. But I'm going to definitely turn to you guys as frequently as possible. It's good to see you. Um, there is so much to say about this passage. And I, I would love to dig into all of it today. But um, just like an adaptation of a book, you know, from, from a book to a movie, you just can't include everything. We're limited by about a 30-minute sermon to really expose this whole text. And so I want to encourage you guys on your own as we go through this series 
not to just depend upon the sermons to fully expose the text to you, but dig in, grab a commentary, grab something, and dig in and read through because there are so many nuggets of beauty and just pure gold in this passage. But we're going we're gonna to focus on the main point of the passage today, and uh, I hope you'll follow along with me. I'm excited. Paul tells the Philippians that in spite of hardness and difficulty to live lives worthy of the gospel. How? He tells them to have unity so much that it looks like you have the same mind and the same, the same spirit in the middle of hardship. How? He tells them it has been granted to them to suffer for the gospel's sake as he is. How? How do we get to that place? I'm excited to talk about it because Paul's actually going to open up his heart today and show us some of the inner workings of his soul, his mind, and his heart and what's going on and how he's gotten to a place where he can suffer, go through extreme suffering for Christ. In fact, he can be, he says later on in Philippians, I've learned to abound and succeed and be rich. I've learned to have little and have nothing, but I've learned to be content no matter where I am. And we'll talk about that later on in the series. But for now, we look at Paul and we get a glimpse into his heart and mind. And I'm, I'm excited about this because, you know, I mean, I, I've gone through difficulty, but I've never been in chains for God's love like Paul. It sounds like the Nick Jonas song. They got me in chains. Got me in chains for your love. Anybody heard that? Yeah. Paul is literally there for God. And there's a guard chained to him 24-7, no privacy. They change these guards out throughout the day. And he's, so he's not just in a cell. He's chained to a Praetorian God. Can't even use the restroom in privacy. This is the life that Paul is in. He's in a kind of hell. He has been about planting churches his entire life. He's been out there. Paul would walk into a city, no believers. And then a few months later, walk out, and there's a thriving church. I mean, the guy was a rock star evangelist. He was a leader of leaders. He could train people up and set them free into the ministry and then just check back in with letters later on. I mean, this guy's life has been about spreading the gospel and now he's stuck chained to a smelly old Praetorian guard several times a day. Yet he says this as he faces possible ex execution. He says this, it doesn't matter to me whether I live or die, it's a small thing. He's triumphed in there. He, he hasn't let it destroy him. How did Paul get to that place in his life? Manny, last week, did a wonderful job talking about how Paul had joy in the middle of his trial. And so we're going to dig deeper into that question as the text digs deeper into that question over the next few minutes. But we're going to catch this glimpse, as I said, of Paul and how the gospel has totally converted his life. Where he says, it's not the circumstances of life, but it's how we define life that will determine whether we stand or fall in this world. Let me ask you, what is your definition of life? Think about that. What are you living for? What is the most important thing to you? What will make your life worth living, regardless of what else happens. What is life? 
Most of us don't even really stop to ask. And this is huge for us today because I want you to have hope today. I want you to have joy. I want you to have peace no matter what's going on in your life, in all the circumstances. But you have to catch what Paul is saying here in this passage. And if you catch it, it'll transform you. You will have peace in the middle of circumstances. You'll have unity with other people in the middle of travesty and despairing circumstances that would drive other people to the brink where other people would all but give up on life, God could give you hope and joy in the middle of that. Whether you have success or failure, pain, pleasure, joy, or sorrow, because it's the way you view life that will totally change. If we see how Paul has triumphed, we will triumph. When life gets tough, Paul shows us three things in this passage. The alchemy of life. Yes. The definition of life and the dynamic of life. And if you rearrange those, which I wish I could have done the definition first, it would be D-A-D. But I have to follow the logic, so instead we have ADD today. That A-D-D. A-D-D. So because he sees all these things, he's able to deal with everything. Let's dive right in into the alchemy of life. Firstly, he sees this. Where did I get that term? Well, if you look at verse 12, he says, I want you to see that what looked horrible has really turned out for the spread of the gospel. Then look down at verse 19. He says, I want you to see that what has happened, again, the evil, terrible, horrible things that have happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. What's he saying? He's saying that as bad as this is, it's working for good, both historical good and for my personal good. Verse 12, he says, I want you to see that what's actually happened looked bad, but it turned out for good. Why? Well, now Manny covered this, but I need to tag back into it real quick. The whole Praetorian Guard knows about the gospel. See, Paul wants to plant churches, and he would have never, I think, planned to do a mission to the Praetorian Guard, but on the flip side, he's got a captive audience. Three times a day, this old, smelly, dirty, bad-spirited, mean Praetorian guard gets chained to the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. It's amazing, right? And they're, they're converted left and right. And Paul is saying, you know, I wouldn't have planned this, but this is kind of a cool thing what God is doing. And Matthew Henry, he's this commentator that lived back in the 1600s. He says this about this passage. He says, Paul is claiming that God is the only alchemist. Do you guys, do you guys remember what alchemy is? Maybe you read the book, The Alchemist. I, I still have your copy. Alchemy, of course, at the, the, in the mid-ages, mid they were trying to figure out a way to take baser metals, like lead, and, which they thought was worthless, and figure out a way to turn it into gold. It was through this process called transmutation. Of course, they were never successful, Otherwise, you know, there would have been a big shift in the wealth scheme. All the scientists would be the, the rock stars of the world nowadays, right, the alchemists. But what, what he's saying here, Matthew's saying, is that Paul is saying that God does that all the time with the circumstances of your life. That God takes lead and turns it to gold. You guys remember the story of Joseph? Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery 
Everything, all his hopes for life were dead. The circumstances of life couldn't have gotten any worse. Yet, at the end of the story, God raises him up, and he's the second in command only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And his brothers come back, and he says to his brothers, what you meant to me for evil, God meant for good. See, God took Joseph's, this, this, this base, broken circumstance in his life, and he turned it to gold. And here Paul is saying the same thing, that when, when Paul comes into a situation, he starts by saying, I wonder, I wonder how God is going to turn my circumstances that have all the appearances of being led into gold. Now, be careful. I don't think Paul really, really believes in his heart of hearts that he being couched and sidelined, so to speak, from the great mission of the gospel and just placed into prison, I don't think that he believes that that's enough of a reason to take him out of his career and be executed. Paul doesn't, he knows he doesn't see the big picture, and he comes into a situation like this with tragedy and says, I wonder, I'm curious, I wonder how God is going to turn this from lead into gold. And he has enough faith to stand back with, with all the confidence in the world. And he encourages the believers in Philippi that somehow, through all this bad stuff, through all of this lead, so to speak, God is going to turn things into gold. And Paul seems just, he's satisfied to just catch a glimpse, to just kind of see around the corner, so to speak. He doesn't need to see the whole picture. He just needs to see a little bit. And if you go into difficulties in life knowing that God is turning lead into gold, in a sense, you're already on top. In a sense, it's not going to knock you down. It's not going to destroy you. But Paul doesn't stop there. That's kind of where we left off last week. When we don't want to stop there either, because often when we come into tragedy, we don't see the alchemy. We don't see the bigger picture. We don't even see around the corner a little bit. And we wonder, how in the world is God going to redeem this in my life? How could any good come out of this? Has anybody been there before? We don't see how God is turning lead into gold. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on, verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit... Jesus Christ will turn this out for my deliverance. For my deliverance. Now, um, Tim Keller says that that's not a tremendously great translation of the passage. Uh, it's the Greek word soterion, which everywhere else in Scripture is translated salvation. This is the only place it's translated deliverance. And in the context, it's kind of confusing because Paul's in prison. And he's kind of like you think the guy would want to get out of prison. So maybe he's talking about getting delivered from prison. But what he says, and Tim Keller says this, is the better translation of this is what has happened will result in my salvation. Because as we know, God is at work saving our lives. Right? And so what's the impression you get of this when, when, you, when you read it and it, it says deliverance? The impression that we get, it sounds like Paul's saying, I'm sure that I'm going to get out. I'm sure I'm going to be freed from prison somehow. But it's not true. That can't be what he's saying. Because in the context, literally in the grammar, and you can see it there if you look even in English, he, he doesn't say, in spite of what happens to me, I will be saved. But he says, because of what happens to me, I will be saved. 
And soon after, in verse 21, remember, he says, whether I live or whether I die. I may live, I may die. It doesn't matter. What, Paul, what, what, what Paul's saying, and this is advanced stuff. Guys, this is advanced Christianity. So get your, get your advanced Christianity learner's cap on, man, because this is, this is heavy stuff. It's not light. He doesn't just come into a tragic situation and say, in what way is God turning my base circumstances into beautiful circumstances? In what way is he turning lead into gold? He goes further. He goes beyond circumstances and he starts talking about his own salvation. And he says this, you say, wait, I I know, you're like, salvation? Paul doesn't think he's saved? Well, you know, the word salvation in Greek has different tenses. Often in scripture it can be used, sometimes it refers to the past tense, that we've been saved from the penalty of sin. But sometimes the word salvation refers to the present tense, that right now in our lives, we're being saved from the very power of sin over us. That God, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the belief in the gospel, is separating our hearts from sin and saving us from sin's power. And one day that'll be fulfilled in the future tense when we're finally saved from the very presence of sin. We will see Christ as he is glorified and we'll be like him. We'll be glorified, right? So Paul is saying is this, I rejoice because I know that the suffering and tragedy, whether I face execution or not, it's saving me. It's making me the man I want to be. It's refining me. It's transforming me. It's making me more like my Savior. More a man of love. More a man of humility. It's not just that God can change my circumstances into gold, but he's using my circumstances to change me into gold. It's all right. God's not just interested in your circumstances. He's interested in your character, who you are becoming. Do you see that? So Paul is actually saying, I need this. Ask yourself real quick. In your life, what you're going through. Right now, can you say that? Can you say, I need this. God has something in it that he's working out, not just to make my circumstances better, but to change me, to transform me. This is advanced Christianity. And I keep saying that because it's not the sort of thing you can just say, oh, wow, that's how I'll deal with tragedy. I'll start tomorrow. It's not an easy thing. It's advanced. And I'm just showing you what a great man, a great man who wrote over a third of the New Testament, a great man who traveled around the world and saw thousands come to Christ, what he believed, what he saw that led him in the worst circumstances of his life, stuff we can't even imagine going through, to have joy and hope and faith in the middle of that. When he gets into a difficult situation, he's not overthrown. It doesn't mean he doesn't weep. It doesn't mean he doesn't grieve. It doesn't mean he doesn't struggle. But this is what he says. God is turning this into gold, and God is turning me into gold. I need this. It will ripen me. It will change me. This will make me more like my Savior. Through this happening, I will be saved. But does that mean that when bad things happen to a Christian, it's automatically purifying you? Haven't you guys ever seen somebody full of faith go through a trial and seem to lose their faith? 
seem to struggle all the more. It doesn't sweeten them. It embitters them. It doesn't warm them. It actually makes them cold and resistant to God. Have you seen that? Has it happened to you? Yeah. So it's not automatic. When Paul says, I see the alchemy of life. I see hard things happen. I know God is turning lead into gold. He then turns around and says, but here's how. This is, this is the secret. Okay. Paul then says, whether hard things in life turn you to letter or, or, or to gold depends on, number two, your definition of life. The whole secret is in this little word, for. Let's read verse 20. Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or death, for, because. What's he going to say here? Here it is. He's about to tell you how it's possible that bad things can save you, purify you, how you can face them with joy. For, to me, to live is Christ. That's the definition of life. If you have a proper definition of life, you can face anything. If you don't have a proper definition of life, you won't be able to. What do you mean? He gives you a proper definition of life. For me, to live is what? This makes life, life for me. This is my bottom line. This is the most important thing for me. If I have this, I'm really living regardless of what else is taken away. Now let me show you some alternatives. Sometimes, instead of to live as Christ, we have more of an Epicurean approach. For me, to live is pleasure. Especially in San Diego, right? Where you can do any number of things on the weekend, and it's, it's the constant pursuit of pleasure. These people, they may have a good job and they may make money, but it's not the definition of life for them. It's pleasure. It's fun. It's, they take away pleasure from life. That is the only reason. And if you take pleasure away from them, they don't have life anymore. Or there's the stoic approach, which is for me to live is strength, control, to be strong and tough and in control. Um, one of my, I, I like old movies, classic noir films. And uh, has anybody ever seen... Angels with Dirty Faces, James Cagney. Okay, watch it. If you can find it, it's not on Netflix. I wish it was. Angels with Dirty Faces. It's classic. And of course, you know, it's in the turn of 1920s or 30s when they made it. So they all talk like this, see? You know, one of those kind of old school gangster movies. And uh, James Cagney's whole definition of life is like, be tough. Never let them see you down. See? You know, it's... Never let it look like you're sweating. Don't be yellow. And so all these kids on the street, the street kids, they all look up to this guy because he's the toughest dude. He's bad, you know. But he gets caught and he's in prison facing the electric chair. And in this time, you know, he's, he's like, they're not going to see me yellow. I'm going to go out with a smirk and a smile. You know, that's his whole thing in the chair. And Father, um, Father Patrick O'Brien comes to him and tells him, he says, the only way to save these kids from a life of crime is to disillusion them with who you are. And so when you go to the chair, right, I need you to do something for me. Do you, you don't want them to end up like gangsters, do you? And he said, no, I don't want them to be gangsters. Okay, will you do something for me? 
He says, when you go to the, to the chair, will you shriek, will you scream, will you panic, and, and die yelling? And Cagney says, that's all I have left. That's all I've got. And he says, that's the only way you're going to save him. So, of course, toward the end of the movie, the final scene, he walks towards the chair, and voluntarily, of course, he just has a meltdown. He screams and shrieks, ah, dies yellow. And all the kids are saved because they're disillusioned with this big, bad, tough guy. And none of them enter into this broken life of crime. Do you know what happened there? Well, if you see what Paul's saying here, you know something happened with Jimmy Cagney and his character in that movie. And that is he was converted. Because when somebody said, you've got to get rid of your bottom line, what, what, what was that for him? It was to be tough. It was to be in control. It was to be the man, right? Be strong. He had to find a different bottom line, something higher to live for, or he couldn't handle the test. But he converted. Or there's the moralistic approach. That's the other way, the moralist. For me to live is morality, to be a good person. Has anybody seen uh, Les Mis? Javert, right? This is classic Javert. For me to live is morality. Why does Javert kill himself in the end of Les Mis? Why? He can't stand the idea that a criminal like Valjean is a better person than him. He can't stand the idea that Valjean would give him mercy when he couldn't. He can't stand the idea of grace. Therefore, when he comes to the end, he can't change out his bottom line. And he kills himself. He commits suicide. You either change your bottom line or you die. Tragedies and troubles come to us and they take away that which makes our life worth living. And unless you change your definition of life, you collapse. You can't handle it. So Cagney at the end changes his definition of life, so he makes it. Javert at the end, he will not change, so he commits suicide and he dies. He doesn't make it. He won't accept grace. At the end, he dies lost. Most of us, though, aren't that coherent. Most of us probably wouldn't say, I'm more Epicurean. I'm more Stoic. I'm a moralist. Like Most of us, we just have really regular, everyday stuff that we've chosen. My family, my friends, my career my spouse, my kids. And we say, for me to live is to have blank. What is that for you? Just think about that. What, is, what would you put in that blank? For me to live is to have this. Because when tragedies of life come and go after your bottom line, you either collapse or you convert. Collapse or convert. Paul says there is only one definition of life, one bottom line, one ultimate thing that will stand up to anything. No matter what comes your way, for me to live is Christ. You know what that means? It means Paul's career, his career is completely ruined. He can't go plant churches anymore. But his career is not his life. He says, I may live, I may die, it doesn't matter. It hasn't touched my life. If your career is collapsing, and therefore your whole life is collapsing, the problem is not the circumstances of your life. It's the definition of your life. Do you see that? If your life's collapsing because your career's collapsing, it's because your career's your life. Convert. 
Here's Paul. He loves his friends, the Philippians. He says so over and over in this letter. But now he's separated from them. He's locked in with these smelly Praetorian guards. But his friends are not his life. There are a lot of people who live for their friends, their family, their children, their spouse, the people in their life. That's a lot more noble, actually, than living for your career or for money or for pleasure or or control. But Paul's friends were not his life. What are you going to do when the people you value die or leave you? Remember, one of my mentors told me at one point, he said, Vince, you know one of the things pastors do? They freak out when people go to leave the church and move somewhere. I've seen pastors, they all freak out and they say, no, 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 please don't do that. What can we do to get you to stay? He said, guys, don't do that. Listen, here's the truth. Everyone is going to leave you at some point. Whether they go to plant a church somewhere, they go to move across country, they die. Everyone. And what will you have left when your life is laying in front of a casket in front of you? What do you have left? If your life collapses when your loves collapse, it means your loves were your life. And the problem is not your circumstances. It's your definition of life. Convert. Lastly, when Paul faces hardness in life, it didn't faze him because he saw the alchemy of life. But not just because God can turn things in our life from lead to gold through the trials of life. It only happens if you have the proper definition of life. If you say, for me to live is Christ. Paul was in love with Jesus Christ. It was the most important thing in his life. And as a result, he could face anything. But how can any of us actually get our hearts fixed onto that? And that's our last point, the dynamic of life. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. One thing is certain. Every one of us here will die. And you're like, dang, man. I came here on Sunday to get uplifted. What are you talking about? Why are you being so negative in the pulpit? We don't like to think about death, do we? We spend... Hundreds of dollars and hours thinking about our health and beauty and avoiding death. I I guarantee you, if there was a fountain of youth, we would probably do just about anything to actually take a sip from it so we could live forever. Right? Isn't that the dream of all of us? We're terrified of death, yet Paul says to die is gain. Why? Well, to die is to be with Christ. It's what Kenny was saying as he was leading songs just a few moments ago. You see, for Paul to live is Christ and to die is even better because his bottom line is Christ. And he finally will get the thing that his heart longs for. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But how does he get there? How do we get there? I'll tell you the secret is this. It's in knowing Christ. For instance... And I'll, I'll wind it down with this. In John 17, 19, Jesus is praying. He's praying in front of his disciples. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. 
If you're bored today and this afternoon and you're looking for something good to read, read John 17 in Jesus Christ's prayer for his followers. It'll blow your mind. But in this prayer, I love what he says. Verse 19, And for their sake, Jesus says, I consecrate or, or sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Do you know what that means? Christ is saying, I live for them. I sanctify myself. It means I, I set myself apart just to see them sanctified and holy. When a person trains for the Olympics, everything else in their life goes on hold. Everything. It becomes subservient to that one main goal. I'm sorry, darling, I love you, but right now is not a good time to talk about the wedding. I'm training for the Olympics, right? Everything else, your calendar, your job, your career, everything else goes on hold and becomes subservient to that one main goal. And Jesus Christ says, everything about me, my life, my schedule, my dreams, my goals, the very reason I left the Godhead and came down to be incarnated as a man, the reason I died, everything I'm doing now in heaven, everything is subservient to one goal, your perfection and holiness. For their sakes, he says to the Father, I sanctify myself, I'm set apart for them. You know what the Bible's saying there? Just, just let this marinate on your cranial tissues and drip down to your heart. Okay? Jesus is saying, if you understand what I've done for you, if you look at me dying on the cross, for me to live is you. Jesus Christ, creator God, says, for me to live is Mike. For me to live is is Tyson. For me to live is David. For me to live is Kenny. For me to live is Brooke. For me to live is Sarah. For me to live is you. My life is to see you holy and happy, Jesus says. My life is to see you sanctified. Everything I do is subservient to that goal. What does it mean when you see me on that cross, says Jesus? It means I'm willing to do anything to have you with me. For me to live is you. Now, know what a Christian says in response to that? You look and you look and you look at that and you think about that and you think about that and you think about that and you let it just infuse with your heart and after a while, it totally changes you. You know why? Because you look and you say, Jesus Christ, my brother, my friend, my Lord, my Savior, my God. If for you to live is me, for me to live is you. And if for you to live is him, then you have nothing that can take your life away. You can smirk at the electric chair because Paul is. For me to live is Christ. Do you have the definition? If you don't, convert. Convert today. Don't wait till the end. Who knows whether you'll be James Cagney or Javert. Let's pray. Father, as we come down today and partake in communion, and we remember your life-giving death, 
the fact that you laid down everything so that you could have us. And I, I look in the mirror and I say, why on earth would he want me? Yet you loved me all for love's sake. You became poor and wretched and despised of men and died a death of a criminal on a tree and that perfect righteous life lived in my place was broken and torn. And your blood that was spilled out to forgive me of every sin dripped out of your veins so that we could have the life that we long for with you, so we could have reconciliation with the Father. I pray today as we come down for communion that we would remember that, that as we take the bread that represents your righteous life lived in your body for our place and the blood the, the, the grape juice that represents the blood that was spilled out to forgive us of all our sins we can come boldly and confess I'm broken in these areas of my life but I'm ready to convert I'm ready to change because I've seen something more beautiful I've seen something more worth living for my bottom line isn't working. I'm ready to change it out. For me to live is you. I pray that we would have conversations around what that looks like today in communion circles. Holy Spirit, this is all for not if you don't move, if you don't heal, if you don't touch hearts and lives and transform us. We can't even transform ourselves, though we'd love to. But even the desire and the faith is a gift that comes from you. So we pray that you would move on our hearts and change us, convert our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna come down and take communion. And if you're new here, if it's your first time, this is how we normally wrap our services. Take communion together and we confess our areas of need and proclaim the gospel to one another through communion. Please don't feel like you have to do this, but we do want to invite you to come down and join in the circle. At the very least, listen in. If you're not a believer today, just come down. Don't worry about taking communion, but just partake and listen and hear what people are doing as they proclaim faith to one another. If you're nervous about all this, that's okay. We're going to gather together at the end for a song. We'd love for you to stay. If not, I'd love to meet you outside and, and get to know you guys. But come on down. Let's receive communion together and remember God's love for us. Amen?